Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question, while providing real solutions from a biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Pastor Charles Roberts and Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Out of the Question podcast. Today is March the 2nd, 2018. And this is a podcast where we seek to ask questions or address questions that uh, many people are thinking about, but also to go behind that question and find out the deeper issue uh, back of many of the questions people are asking today. This is Pastor Charles Roberts, and I'm joined by my co-host, mentor, and uh, all-around good gal, Andrea Schwartz. How are you today, Andrea? I'm good. I'm an all-around good gal. I like it. <laughs> okay. One thing we'd like to let our listeners know is that we have set up a special email address for our podcast, and you can use this email address to address questions to us, suggestions of uh, issues or questions that you'd like for us to uh, speak about or look into. And that email address is outofthequestionpodcast at gmail.com, outofthequestionpodcast at gmail.com, and we will uh, remind you of that at the end of the program. Let me just say that we're also open to praise. You guys are doing a great job. And we're also open to challenges if someone takes exception to something that we said or how we've said it. And I think we're both interested in if we have gone down a path that maybe needs to be looked at otherwise, that we're open to doing so. So you can use that email address to do a lot of things. Yes, thank you very much for pointing that out. We look forward to any kind of feedback within reason. So uh, we will be glad to, to re receive that information. And address your checks to me, not him. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's, let's, get, let's get serious here. Well, today we want to deal with a question that on a lot of people's minds, especially in light of um, the violence and things that we've seen in our society recently. And that is this. Can't we just simply appeal to people's sense of goodness, sense of fairness, and all the, the problems and troubles and miseries we see in modern society, isn't that simply the best way to go, to, to appeal to people's good sense of fairness and justice? And just the overall idea that, that people, if given the choice, would be, would be good. But I think that there may be a deeper issue behind that question. What do you think, Andrea? Well, obviously, because if, if we can't just get along... And you look at history, and one of the things that occurs over and over again are conflicts between people, conflicts within families, conflicts within cities, nations. So conflict seems to be a part of human history. So the question behind the question is, if people can't just get along, why not? Right along with that is the, the issue for us as Christians is, is there a, uh, a difference between people who have become followers of Jesus, who have become Christians, who confess Christ as Lord and Savior? Is there a difference between our understanding of what it means to be good and any other understanding of that, of that issue? But yes, uh, the Rodney King question, you know, can't we all just get along? Well, apparently not. Yeah, apparently not. And here's the other thing, and this is an example where theology gets skewed if biblical law is not known. So the scripture tells us those who are in Christ are a new creation. Behold, old things have gone away, all things become new. 
Yet, you'll hear people say, those who profess belief in Jesus Christ, label themselves, call themselves Christians, talks about we're really no different than anybody else. And it isn't so much an arrogance, oh, we're better than anybody else, because if you truly understand the gospel message, it's none of us are good, and it's only through Jesus Christ that we're acceptable to the Father. So if we are in Christ, then we are a new creation. That's what the scripture says. And that new creation-ness, if that's a word, has implications. Without an understanding of God's law, it's very hard for us to do what Jesus commanded to judge righteous judgments. Because we're supposed to judge, but what we're not supposed to do is judge willy-nilly. I like blue, so everybody better like blue. And if they don't like blue, well, I'm going to make sure they suffer for it. So I think biblical law has to be tied into regeneration. Because if you don't put the two things together, I think you get some weird hybrid that's not really even genuine. Yes, and I think that the lack of awareness of this issue or the fact that you're saying that sounds strange or even objectionable to some Christians shows how far the church has strayed from the religion of the Bible, the teachings of Scripture, and especially, for most important of all, the teachings of Jesus. I mean, Jesus is the one who said, if you love me, well, let me misquote what he said. If you love me, feel good about yourself. That's not what he said. Right. If you, if, you, if you love me, just be nice to everybody. No, he said, if you love me, keep my commandments. So that apparently, if I love Jesus, but I don't think the law of God applies to me anymore, then I don't really love Jesus based on what Jesus said. Exactly. That's precisely the point that he's making. And we see this right through the New Testament writings, that there is this either explicit in some places or implicit in others, the idea that following Jesus, and this is an important concept because modern evangelicalism has simply turned it into an idea of a transformative feeling. The idea that I've I've had this experience and I feel a certain way without the corresponding change or uh, replacement of ethical behavior. And that's exactly the point that Jesus is making, that if you do have this feeling of love toward me, well, how do you prove it? You prove it by what you do, not simply by what you say that you feel. Right. You know, I, I make analogies a lot because I do a lot of teaching. But one of the ways you show the bank that you really meant to pay back the loan is to pay it back so that they don't have to come looking for you and say, your payment isn't due. I don't know why we think that the Christian life wouldn't have obligation attached to it as opposed to now we're freewheeling and it doesn't matter because we're in Christ and now all bets are off. It would be, it would seem to be that those in Christ, since we have the greater responsibility, will also have the greater culpability to the degree we're not obedient. Well, the question about appealing to the good in people or put it a different way, appealing to people's sense of goodness. The deeper issue behind that, as we've said, is this question of, is there a fundamental moral or ethical difference between the redeemed person and the person who isn't? One of the things that's lost, I think, again, in modern evangelical Christian circles, and I would expand that to 
what other ever Christian traditions have lost it. And that's this idea that believing, belief, in the context in which Jesus and the disciples operated meant simply a lot more than just giving mental assent to propositional statements. You know, I can believe that 2 plus 2 equals 4, and it doesn't have any impact at all on my ethical or moral behavior. And unfortunately, that type of post-enlightenment semi-scientific thinking has come to be imported into our understanding of believing in Jesus, where in the, the earlier context of the Aramaic and Hebrew languages, it meant living a certain way. It, yes, it meant feeling a certain way and thinking a certain way, but in, involved in that was the type of behavior that you manifest. And uh, it was one New Testament scholar I remember hearing give a lecture, and he was talking about the Jewish-Roman historian Josephus. You know, Josephus actually became, uh, I think, a, a general in the Roman army. They co-opted him, so to speak, uh, with, with his full cooperation as they attacked Jerusalem in between 66 and 70 A.D., they were using him to try to convince the Jews to surrender at various occasions. And he, he quoted that in reading Josephus in the Greek text in which he, he wrote, that there was a point where Josephus was trying to convince one of these holdouts to give in and avoid the destruction of the city. And he used a, a Greek word that means, as it's used in the, the New Testament, change your way of thinking and follow and do what I do. So belief in the New Testament, and as Jesus used the term, it, it means simply more than thinking a certain way or having a certain feeling. It, it automatically and unavoidably connects to behavior. Exactly. The whole concept of repentance is this 180 turnaround. So if we assume that everybody's basically good, and all you got to do is add Jesus to your diet, well, then belief can be whatever you want it to be. But if we're coming with the premise that all men are hopelessly lost and at war with God in their very core, then part of following Jesus is to repent, to turn around, and be converted. That means you go from being one thing to being something else. In the whole history of civilization, there have been two basic outlooks on the nature of a human being, and that is either that they are basically good at heart, so to speak, morally open to improvement, or from the biblical perspective, the other point of view is that at heart, we are at war with God, and apart from his redeeming grace, there is no goodness in us. And I don't think you have to look very far down the corridors of history to see that the idea that people are basically good is just preposterous. Anyone who has ever raised children can see this for themselves. A baby comes into this world to all apparent purposes, with a clean slate. The, the baby comes out of the womb. Nobody has told the baby to do one thing or the other, any way or the other. And it doesn't take long for the selfishness of the child and its lack of conformity to proper behavior to become quite evident very early on. Right. Like, where does, what, how did that happen? Where, where did he learn that? Well, it may be true that that baby, by the time he or she is born, has not accumulated any sins, but that baby certainly comes out of the chute with sin. So the principle of sin is within that child, and very soon the child starts accumulating the sins. This is necessarily involving us, at least at this stage of our conversation, with some perhaps deep theological or philosophical or metaphysical type discussion about human nature. Um, but in the psychology of religion, from our standpoint, 
that is, we hope from the biblical standpoint, we go by what Paul tells us in uh, the very first chapter of Romans, where he addresses this fundamental issue. And he powerfully points out that the very nature of the human being is one of being at heart alienated from God. That makes up his whole psychology. That makes up his whole framework of reference, that he knows in his heart that there is a God to whom he's accountable and from whom he is just by very nature of being a human being alienated. And apart, again, from the redeeming grace of God, he will be that way, and that will color and affect every decision that he makes. But the the fundamental problem with us is that we don't like that awareness, and so, to use Paul's words, we suppress that truth. We hold it down in unrighteousness. And that is the starting point for any healing of emotions, of feelings, of anything dealing with the psychological makeup of the human being. And that's where we have to necessarily encounter the idea of what it means to be good and what qualifies as good behavior. But because we are so surrounded by alternate definitions of good and evil, and because it's not fashionable today to hold a high standard of Scripture and speak to the idea that God's Word addresses every area of life and thought, now good means my neighbor doesn't make a lot of noise when they're having a party or that this person waves to me when I drive down the street and gee, you can always count on this person to smile at you and say, Hey, have a nice day. If, if that's what goodness is, then we have really lost the idea, as you put it, that man is born in sin and there needs to be a remedy for that sin. It's interesting that the basic foundation of what would become these United States in terms of our constitutional law and government was founded on this very idea that people at heart need to govern themselves according to the moral standards of the Ten Commandments, and that this becomes then the foundation of real freedom. Because if we, by God's grace and power, are able to do that, then it will mean that we don't have to have a lot of other constraints put upon us by government, by the conventions of society, because we all will then be governing ourselves according to the real conventions of society as given to us in Holy Scripture. And so we really do, as believers, need to make sure that we understand it. Because if we want to say, well, if I say I'm better than the person who isn't a believer, then aren't I being arrogant? I mean, don't I need to reach out to that person? Don't I need to be accessible? Don't we need to not be so judgmental? I just was reading in a magazine, a pastor from Alabama basically says that he doesn't think God has called him to judge. That in a courtroom, there are lots of different positions. There's the judge, there's the attorney, there's the the defendant. And, and he is a spectator there to help people. So he's not going to tell them. He's not going to talk about these hot-button issues like abortion and marriage and homosexuality because first what he wants to do is gain their trust. And then once he has their trust, he can talk about these things. Don't you think that's a ludicrous plan in light of God's word? Well, it's, a, it's certainly a ludicrous, ludicrous plan in light of God's Word, but it's also ridiculously illogical by any standard because 
if I say, well, you, you should never judge, well, then I've just made a judgmental statement. Judgment is unavoidable. The question is, by what standard are judgments going to be made? And we come right back to that issue in terms of what it means to be good. If I say I'm going to appeal to the goodness in people, well, what, what is, how do I measure what that goodness looks like? Is it, as you said, they refrain from doing little things that might annoy me? Or is it something far more, more fundamental than that? He also said, since I just read this article, I'll, I'll bring it up. He said, I make sure people understand that Christianity isn't a religion. The Bible never talks about religion, that Christianity is a relationship. Well, religion, like everything else, <laughs> is unavoidable because what a religion is, what you consider most important. So to say that religion isn't important or someone doesn't have it, all you're doing is you're playing with it. If sports and who wins the Super Bowl or who wins the World Series is all you concern about, you can say that sports is your religion. So to actually make the statement that Christianity isn't a religion, well, then what is it? If it's not a way of life, if it's not the thing that's most important to an individual, then what could it possibly be? Well, I think there's a sense in which, and it's hard to know, I, I don't know what was in the mind of this person who said that or in the, in the magazine article, but I've heard that sort of thing before. Another way of saying the same thing is, well, I'm not religious, but I'm very spiritual. A very similar kind of comment. And, and, and let's uh, hopefully agree that in this experience of some people, especially people who are brought up in uh, Christian homes and they go to churches, they may have the experience where it becomes sort of a rote thing that doesn't really have any general impact on life. I think probably, at least in mine and your generation, uh, the baby boom generation of the 50s and 60s, people, a lot of people went to church back mm -hmm. in those days. Right. But that was also uh, the, those two decades, if we throw in the 70s, you've got a, um, a generational stretch where we saw some of the most serious decline in Christian culture in this country. And yet more and more people were going to church then. So I think that when people say that, to some extent, maybe what some of them at least are saying is that Christianity is not simply just going to a certain place on a Sunday and then it doesn't really have any meaning or impact. Yes, Jesus definitely had relationships with people. I mean, that's one of the things that I think if we read the gospel accounts of his life and his ministry, it was so striking that set him apart from the Pharisees and these others. You know, that great part where he He's teaching, and this is the people heard him gladly because he didn't speak like the Pharisees. He spoke as one with authority. Well, I think that what that means is that he spoke as one who really understood what he was saying and practiced what he preached. But look, let's talk about some of the relationships that he had. You know, he didn't just simply tell people to go off and feel good about themselves. And I think we may have, I may have mentioned this in a previous podcast, the, uh, the case of the woman taken in adultery. Well, what does he say to her? Your sins are forgiven. But then he goes on and says, go and sin no more. That is a declaration of a particular type of behavior. It presupposes an idea of what that means about sinning no more. Right. The people that you spoke about that spent time in church, I'm not sure it's fair to call their experiences Christianity. Sometimes it's referred to as churchianity because it had more to do with a social structure and club that people were conforming to each other rather than conforming to the person of Jesus Christ according to God's law. 
that gets us into the area of trying to severely or very definitively defining, okay, this qualifies as Christian and this doesn't. For all intents and purposes, if you've got a million people who all go to six or seven different Protestant or Roman Catholic churches, and they broadly consider themselves Christians, and then we come in and tell them, oh, no, you're not, that doesn't make a lot of sense to people. Now, I understand what you're saying, but the point I'm trying to get at is that Look, if you are really going to be serious about this faith that you claim to have, then this is what qualifies. This is what keeps you in the club, so to speak. And it involves a lot more than just simply showing up and engaging in social behavior. It involves your your whole life commitment. Your whole what what are you what are you about doing? Do you see yourself as an ambassador for Christ? More importantly, are you taking seriously the charge that He's given of? making the nations his disciples. That, that's the, the marching orders. We, we're, we should be about kingdom work. That's what characterizes those who are followers of Jesus. And I wonder how many churches we could go in today, and I'm not even talking about the mainline you know, liberal churches. I mean, so-called conservative churches. Are you about the work of building the kingdom of God? What would they say? Well, right, and that's where you see too often people having the same concerns as their non-Christian neighbors, and so, appreciably speaking, there isn't a lot of difference. In other words, we start picking people as to who we want to associate with or feel like that we're the same as, and there are a lot of alliances that are not based on God's Word. I want to go back to something earlier that you said. It's not a question of us saying who's in the club or not. Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. Unfortunately, people think that that's something that they have to do, and that's why you have your altar calls, and that's why you have trying to press people into accepting Jesus. That must, I don't think Jesus was saying, you produce it. The same way that you must have air to breathe, you must have water to sustain life. These are requirements for living. And so Jesus was telling Nicodemus, The Spirit goes where he wants. It's the Spirit that regenerates, not people who effort it. So if we are in Christ, and I'm not saying that all people who are antinomian, who don't follow God's law, aren't, but are they faithful Christians or are they unfaithful Christians? So it's not my call to say whether you're a Christian or not. But Jesus told me to judge based on your fruits, based on your actions. So I may be in a position where I'm looking at those who are in Christ, but they're not following Christ. Well, and you can see in Nicodemus' response to Jesus' statement, the fact that he didn't quite get it, but then I think he realized the implications of what Jesus said, and and that, you know, well, how how can this be? How can a person actually literally be reborn? Of course, Jesus' response is, well, apart from God, you can't. Uh, and, And that gets to the whole heart of the issue about, okay, you, you, you can't be good in any meaningful sense of the term unless you have taken care of this prior issue, which is your rebellion against God and your desire to create your own definition of good. People understand, quote-unquote, that there is such a thing as goodness. The problem is what they're using to define it and understand it is completely wrong. And uh, that there is only one true standard of goodness, and it, it's that given to us by God uh, in his law. And so because people are not schooled from their pulpits, by and large, or from their parents, by and large, in terms of 
what the faith is and what it means to believe God, to hope in God, and to love God, then we can get these skewed definitions. And so people can think, and I've talked to them, that they can be Christians, but think abortion is a personal decision. They can be Christians, but alter the way in which they think people should be married. Or they can be Christians, and despite the fact that the scripture points to otherwise, don't have any problem with sending their children to a, a public school. So obviously, their sanctification doesn't include taking their priorities, taking their preferences, and laying them aside and asking God by reading his word, Lord, what would you have me do? And unfortunately, that is reinforced in uh, a lot of so-called conservative churches, at least the churches that have that veneer. The denomination in which I'm a part currently has an individual who uh, I believe is running for governor uh, or has put his name in the hat to be governor of one of our states. And he has taken that sort of stance in terms of abortion, that he's personally opposed to it. But, uh, you know, as governor would simply agree that this is the law of the land or, or whatever it may be. I mean, it's a very compromising kind of statement. I know of another case where an individual was presented at some sort of semi-church function in a reformed church context. This individual was presented as a gay Christian. So again, we find that ultimately the standard by which goodness or rightness or righteousness is going to be assessed or judged can be very easily co-opted and changed if there's not a strong emphasis on uh, the absolute authority of God's law word. And I would venture to say, Charles, that there are people, if they felt they weren't in such a minority, would affirm a lot of what we're saying. But because they have concerns about how they'll be viewed, whether they'll keep their job, Family dinners are just so unpleasant because, yeah, dad is always the one who's going to talk about the Bible and what does the Bible say and can't we talk about something else? I, I think we have to realize that we're going to pretty much be part of a minority in a world that's humanistically oriented. And we have to be willing to stand for the truth. And in most cases, maybe that's not going to be the case in the future, but in most cases, if somebody says to me, well, I think a man and a man should be able to marry each other if they love each other, I can say, I think it's wrong. And instead of being told, oh, you're so uncaring, and no, 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 I'm not uncaring. Look, you have your way of looking at the world, and I have my way of looking at the world, and mine is based on the Bible. And so now it becomes an opportunity to open the door for these people, as opposed to thinking, if I say that, well, they're going to be turned off by Christianity. Well... I don't have the ability to put someone in heaven or remove them. So I think I'm safe by doing my version of thus saith the Lord. Well, let's follow up on that statement you just made where um, you have told this person, this theoretical example, that your belief is based on what the Bible teaches. Now, you've already given us one example of someone who claimed to be a Christian writer, said that. They, they believe that it wasn't their place to judge and that Christianity isn't a religion, it's a relationship, etc., etc. We have this phenomenon today, and I'd be interested in your thoughts about it, of, again, churches that would be generally considered evangelical-slash-conservative churches 
have gone to something they call seeker-sensitive worship services, where the service is sort of manipulated or changed from a traditional Reformed or Protestant-type service to something more like a, a rock concert or a pep rally type of thing. Speak to that a little bit. What, what Are you familiar with that, and what are your thoughts on it, Andrea? Hey, I live in California. I'm familiar with a lot of things. That's why I asked um, <laughs> Well, there's the rock concert model. There is the rally model. And then there's the motivational speaker. You can be the best you possibly can be model. Almost never is the man opening up a Bible. Almost never is he systematically going through the scripture. So he's going to take you know, a, a choice verse that he could do anything he wants with it and make it appealing as though, as though sinners find God appealing. Sinners never find God appealing. If it wasn't for the intervention of God himself in our life, we would continue on the path to destruction. So in terms of trying to help somebody, that's like that you go into the doctor and you know, he looks at your mouth and your tooth is rotting. And he says, here, take this, put this on there. You won't see the discoloration anymore. And actually, if you sing really loudly, you'll think about something else. It doesn't change the condition of your tooth. And if you're not going to address the tooth, well, you're not going to help somebody. Well, eventually somebody's tooth hurts enough that they just might listen to somebody who says, this is what's wrong with your tooth. So what do you think, then, is behind the desire to have these kinds of services where it doesn't look or feel anything like a what we would consider a from, say, a generation ago, a church worship service, but it's something much, much, much different? Why do you think the churches are doing that? Well, I think in a word it's called syncretism, and it's not a new problem. If you go into the book of First Kings, and you follow the life of the prophet Elijah, that's what he was dealing with. As a matter of fact, Elijah would fit in very well as an unpopular prophet today because he kept telling then the people of Israel that what you're doing is contrary to what God's law says to do because they were constantly trying to appeal to those around them and have acceptable faith. Now, when we talk about belief, and you said it's not just my point of view, you can get 10 people together. I believe this is true. I believe that is true. Well, true belief has conviction behind it. And so would you say that the early church, the martyrs, believed in Jesus Christ? Well, they believed in him enough to die. Today's belief system is really my opinion but how many people would stand behind their opinion enough to lose their possessions, potentially lose their family, and even lose their life? Well, that's an interesting point in that, uh, at least from my reading as, I, as well as I recall, the, the people who wound up being martyred in the early church were the forerunners of what would eventually become the orthodox, I mean with a small o, orthodox Christian movement. I mean, you know, in the early days of the church, there were all these different perspectives and extra gospels and, you know, gospel of Thomas and gospel of whatever. And um, the teachings of Jesus, it was almost sort of like you had hippie communes over here and over there. And, uh, um, but, but you had this sort of core group of people in different of these different places where there was intense persecution. 
And those are the ones who said, no, we will not worship Caesar. We, we have only one God. It's Christ Jesus. He is our king. He is our Lord. And it's only by his name that we may. Well, those are the ones who wound up being martyred. You know, the other way, oh, okay, we can all just get along. Everything's fine. You got your belief. I'll, I'll be glad to you know, tip the hat right. uh, uh, kind of thing. I had a conversation in a previous ministry in another state where there was an individual who was pastor of one of the big, big mega churches in, the, in that area. Big newspaper coverage, massive website, multi-campus. I had an opportunity to chat with this guy in a very unique situation. I just happened to run into him one day at, at a restaurant. He and I were the only two people in the restaurant at that point. It was a very small restaurant. And I had an interesting conversation with him. One of the questions I asked him was, well, do you ever talk about in your messages about abortion and gay marriage and those kind of things? And uh, he said, no, no, we try to kind of stay away from that, that kind of thing. And as you pointed out, if you listen to some of these people long enough, or you don't have to listen that long, you can see that you never see a Bible. Uh, and Scripture, if it is quoted, is generally used as some sort of uh, self-help, feel-good if you do this, it'll make your life a little bit better. There's no real perspective that you need to be transformed. You need to turn from the direction you have been going. And by God's, po by God's power, you embrace a new life in following Jesus. And that means you follow a different way of living, not just simply a different way of thinking. And the idea that you can you know, attract people by the type of music or the fog machines or the light shows or whatever it may be, <laughs> Uh, yeah, you, you can attract people, but uh, what exactly are you uh, attracting them to? And, and let's, let's get down to the, the, the basic issue as far as the church is concerned. From the earliest days, the gathering of God's covenant people was not meant to be or tailored to be for pagans and nonbelievers. It, exactly. it was the gathering of God's family. Any more than if uh, you didn't know me and I just happened to be walking down your street and I knocked on your door, it was around uh, dinner time, and I said, look, uh, I'm just walking down the street. I'd like to come in and have dinner with you. Well, I think anyone, I don't care who their background is, anyone would look upon that as a very bizarre request because eating together is a very intimate and private thing. It's for the family or at least very close friends. We don't just let strangers in to eat with us, generally speaking. And so uh, the, the church is for the gathering of God's people. If you want to be seeker-sensitive in your church work, then you need to engage the unbeliever outside the church in a context where they would be more comfortable with the idea of eventually bringing them in to uh, the church family because they have become followers of Jesus. Right. In so many churches, and it's not just you know the evangelical sphere, they're talking to the people who they want to come often rather than the people who are there. <laughs> yes. And so if you have a bunch of people who have been Christians and have been studying the scripture, you don't talk to them from the point of view as though they weren't. And I think that's where we lose the church as God's army. We lose the church as God's ambassadors to the culture. That when you go to hear a sermon, if you're a believer, it should help you discern areas of your life where you're sinning and then potentially what you should be doing or should not be doing in terms of the Great Commission. We talk about R.J. Rush Duty a lot. I used to sit in a lot of his sermons, and I think almost never did I ever say, I really liked your sermon. I usually didn't because <laughs> he was pointing out something that I had looked at potentially as a virtue or a non-issue, and now I was seeing that it was an issue. So I'm not sure that a sermon should make you feel good. 
I think it should be much more like marching orders that says, oh, yeah, I have to go out into the battle here. But being in the communion of saints here on earth bolsters you so that you can support each other in what you're going to do. Not, oh, look, there's a new person. Let's all surround this person and say, join our club, join our club. I mean, if our club is a good club, then they'll want to join. Not that we have to try to convince them to join. Yeah, it reminds me, you were talking about Dr. Rushdoony's sermons. The minister said a woman was coming out of the service and told him, Pastor, that was the best sermon you ever preached. And he responded, yes, Satan just told me the same thing. <laughs> right. The other point, too, is in terms of appealing to the good in people and, and that within a church context. The paradigm, the foundational examples we have of preaching and teaching are in the New Testament. And we don't find anything like what we see today among the, especially the popular television preachers and such, anything like that in the teachings of Scripture and the examples of Paul and Jesus and their preaching and teaching. Lots and lots of people were made very uncomfortable. That doesn't mean we go out of our way to be antagonistic or whether it's a, a formal sermon or just you and a, another woman's having coffee somewhere and you're sharing the message of Jesus with her. That doesn't mean we go out of our way to be antagonistic. But just no. the very very nature of the message is going to be uncomfortable to people who are strangers to it. Well, the Pharisees tried to stone Jesus many times and didn't succeed, but did, of course, think they won the day having him crucified. And Paul, when he would get up and talk, he often had people who tried to kill him or to ambush him. So I don't think that's a test of, well, I must be doing it right because people are trying to kill me. But it's it's a much better understanding that if you speak the truth, you're going to get opposition, but you're also going to get people who God has prepared to have you speak the truth. So I'm sure that a lot of the churches that I've described, I'm not saying that God can't use what's going on there, but I often find that God brings the person in that congregation who really is looking for answers that are not being supplied there, and somehow or other, we end up talking with each other. So from my point of view, we still engage the culture. We engage the, those people who are not living the way the scripture says, even though they're professing belief, that we can be a witness. But sometimes when you're that witness, <laughs> you're saying things that somebody doesn't like. So we should expect negative responses at times, just like we should expect that there'll be those who have a hunger and thirst. And now they say, tell me more. <laughs> Well, and there there is another connection here uh, to this issue of the seeker-sensitive church as it relates to the question behind the question that we're dealing with today, dealing with ideas of goodness and whether people are naturally good or whatever. The whole impetus of this, of this movement uh, goes back to some of the early promulgators of these ideas, the late Robert Schuller, the late Norman Vincent Peale, and are those men were very, very open about the fact that they had been influenced by the power of positive thinking, the science of mind teachings of men like Ernest Holmes, people who were coming at life and faith from a decidedly non-Christian, almost Vedantic Hindu type of perspective about the oneness of all things and that your mind can make you well. And all these things have, have infiltrated into these churches and a lot of churches today, people are being taught that message. It's given a veneer of Christian conservative chatter, but ultimately it's the same message of those in some form that they call new age type of thinking. But at the heart of that, of that type of thinking, is that people are at base good, 
They don't need to be reborn or transformed by the power of God's Spirit. They can be perfected. They just need to start working at it and, and doing that sort of thing. I've taught a number of children. I've catechized them my own and had opportunity to teach others. And I like to draw the diagram. And you know what? It works for adults, too, who need to understand the faith. Assuming that you have somebody who really wants to understand what is the difference between someone who is in Christ, who is truly born again, and those who are not. So I will draw a circle and I'll say, this is a person. And inside, this person has this machine. And the only thing that this machine continues to spew out is sin. He might be nice. I mean, you might find, oh, he's pleasant. I used to say, I'm sure the Boston Strangler might have helped a little old lady across the street. So if we're going to say he was a good guy because he helped a little old lady across the street, then we're not obviously even making any sense because he did some very awful things. So once this machine is going and you encounter other people with the same machine, that's what you have, that you have a society based on people with their own self-interest their own selfishness, their own desire to be God and decide for themselves what's right and wrong. That's what that machine produces. And then the Holy Spirit transforms the person and that machine is replaced by the third person of the Trinity. And it's not a complete overhaul immediately in the sense of all the collateral sin goes away. But at the core, the person is no longer generating sin. That person is no longer at war with God. That person has the Holy Spirit living within him. And now the rest of his life will be the period of sanctification. But the essence of the person has changed. That's why those who are in Christ are a new creation. And the old has gone away and everything becomes new. And that period of sanctification, once you got rid of the old machine and now you've got to clean up the collateral mess of previous times, it's the law of God that tells you what you keep and what's got to go. We have to recapture that idea that we truly are different than those who are not in Christ. There's a great example of this, um, if I can quote from a book called By This Standard, The Authority of God's Law Today by the late Greg Bonson. He cites the example of Matthew 19, and he says, When asked what good things should be done to inherit eternal life, Jesus responded, If you would enter into life, keep the commandments. And he makes it crystal clear that he's referring to Old Testament law in verses 18 to 19. So, again, yes, we are transformed by the Spirit of God, but that begins a work in us that spans right through the entirety of our lives, and that is the process of sanctification where we are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. Again, these things are inevitable. You will live according to some law. You will live according to some standard. And, you know, it, it's often posed as an ethical dilemma. You brought it up, and I'm glad you did because I, I thought about it earlier. Okay, so if an atheist helps a little old lady across the street, let's say a truck is bearing down on her and she's fallen down and the atheist runs out in the middle of the road risking, risking his own life and, and saves the day, has he not performed a good work? Well, he certainly has saved the life of another person, and in some sense that is a quote-unquote good thing. But at, at heart, the issue is, what was the foundational motivation for his doing so? What ultimately is he trying to accomplish in doing that? And if the motivation is something other than that woman was, like himself, created in the image of God and, and morally and ethically accountable to God for their actions, 
then it doesn't matter whether he saved her life or not, because he might just as well be someone who would be very much in favor of uh, aborting a human being before it's born. Now, the little old lady is happy she's still alive, and she will thank him. And we could even say he acted above his fallen nature, maybe by example, seeing other people have saved somebody's life or the heroism that we sometimes see manifested. But it doesn't change his internal condition. It's not that you have to reach this threshold of good works, and then you're okay. I've talked to a lot of people who resist the idea that Christianity is a narrow road and only those who are on that narrow road and come through Christ will be saved, which is what the Bible says. I will hear people say, you know, I like to think that at the end of my life, I will have had done more good things than I've done bad things. And you know what? I'm willing to take my chances. And that's really the attitude of a lot of people. But of course, they get to define how many good things they did and maybe forget all the bad things they did. And that goes to the very heart of the issue that we started out with about why can't we just appeal to the good in people? Well, there really is no good in people unless they have been reborn by the Spirit of God, and the good that exists then is an imputed goodness uh, that comes completely and only from the goodness of our Lord Jesus, who gave himself a sacrifice to satisfy the divine justice of God on our behalf, and it's credited to us as righteousness. These are big questions, and we hope that today we've gotten to the question behind the question about the difference between uh, walking with God, following his law, being empowered by God's Spirit to uh, to do that. Before we wrap up, are there any books or articles or anything you'd like to recommend to anyone, Andrea? Yes, I would. There is a book, and there's also a lecture series that you can get if you go to calcedon.edu. The book is called Salvation and Godly Rule, and it ties in the idea of series of essays. It's a, it's a chunky book, but it's one of those books that you don't necessarily have to sit down and read it in one setting. Different topics and different aspects of salvation. But he makes the point, and it's one of Rush Dooney's books, he makes the point that we're saved for a purpose. We're not just saved so that we'll have a nice day. We're saved because God expects us to rule and rule by making disciples of the nations and by not dominating people, but by teaching people that by knowing God, knowing his law, and applying it, that they will be accepted into the realm of those who are going to make a difference. So when people want to make a difference in the world, they're only going to be able to do that when they're in line with the creator. Absolutely, and I'll second that recommendation. That is an excellent resource, and it can be purchased from the Calcedon store. Just go to calcedon.edu and um, click on the store link, and you can find that book. And also one that I will recommend is a book by the same author, R.J. Rushdoony, called Revolt Against Maturity. In this book, he has a chapter called Man's Highest Good, in which he delves into some of these topics that we've been talking about, among many other things. You know, the neat thing about the Chalcedon website is you can read all these books online. Uh, They're certainly absolutely worth your purchasing, and we would encourage people to do that because these are important resources to have. We hope that this discussion has been helpful to our listeners. Would you uh, remind our our listeners about our, our new email address, Andrea? Yes, out of the question podcast at gmail.com. We'd like to hear from you. We have already gotten some feedback on topics that people hope we will cover, and we look forward to 
answering questions that you have and helping unearth the question behind the question. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, visit www.kingdomdrivenfamily.com.